Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 through 7. Now, 1 Corinthians seems to be Paul writing to the people in Corinth while he's in Ephesus. That seems to be what's going on in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Big picture, I think Paul is really correcting a lot of problems going on in Corinth. He's even addressing issues of incest in the fifth chapter, prostitution in the sixth, divorce in the seventh chapter. There seems to be some heresy going on in the 11th chapter that he's correcting. And then there's this bit in the 11th chapter of Corinthians where um, people come and they eat the food at the sacrament meal before other people get off work. And there's this tension in the Corinthian church between those that are the haves versus those that are the have-nots. And then finally, in the 15th chapter, there seems to be a lot of people in Corinth that don't believe in the resurrection. Now, we're not going to talk about all that today, but from my reading of it at least, there's a lot of problems, and Paul is really trying to correct some of their false ideas. Imagine you live in Greek culture. Now, the city of Corinth is on this isthmus between Sparta and Achaia. It separates Athens from Sparta, and this tiny isthmus had a, a four-mile land bridge. And on this land bridge, there were, there were ports on both sides of this, on the isthmus of Corinth. This land bridge was called the Diokos. It's this combination of a couple words, dia in Greek just means through, and, and hokos is, the, is a portage machine. You see, people would bring their ships on one side and then they would, with cranes, lift the ship up and put it on these rollers, and there was this pathway in Corinth where they could take the ship from one side to the other, and it was about four miles, and if they did this, they could save hundreds of miles of being at sea, going around the Peloponnese Peninsula. And so this city was able to amass a large amount of wealth by collecting the duties or taxes that would have been necessary to transfer ships across the isthmus. And so this was a a place of great wealth, we think. Now today, this land bridge has a straight-cut canal that makes it unnecessary for uh, the ships, obviously, to be lifted up. And you can, you can see images of this canal today. Think Panama. That's probably the best way I can describe it. This trade center of Corinth uh, was a center of wickedness. In its early success, the Greeks coined a verb, Corinthize, which meant to enjoy worldly pleasures. The big cities of the Roman Empire were like today's big cities in offering the best and the worst that the world had to offer. And yet there was no Christianity to temper society back then like there is today. And so immorality issues are more visible in 1 Corinthians than any of the other letters Paul has written, with the exception of perhaps the letter to the Romans. And so this was the situation that was going on in Corinth, that there seemed to be a lot of issues with immorality. Uh, Some of this is reported to Paul from individuals from the house of Chloe. That's going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, that there's this report, individuals from Chloe's house come to Paul, or maybe he receives a letter. And the issues are brought to his attention, and verse 11 talks about that there's contentions amongst the saints in Corinth. And so that's kind of how 1 Corinthians opens up, with Paul getting a report, and he's going to come in with some corrective measures. Now, even bigger picture, you don't necessarily have to be this great historian and this great scholar to get truth out of these epistles. Just lay out what you know about Greece, and you'll think about Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, and so you can imagine this was kind of a hub of thinking, a hub of intellectualism. Great philosophers are found in Greece. And so the general setting here is the intellectualism of man— versus the spirituality of God. 
And that becomes kind of the first major theme. And just like to the Romans where Paul was saying, hey, you live amongst a carnal environment and many of your neighbors are giving into that carnality and you need to rise above it. And so Paul talked a lot about subduing the natural man to the Romans. Now he's saying you dwell among people who are very much into this worldly philosophy and the intellectualism and the wisdom of the world. But do not forget your spiritual side. And so that now becomes kind of the major theme coming into this book. And you're going to see that in the first several chapters. It's almost as if he's pitting them against each other. I note in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. That's kind of very typical of Greece. The world by wisdom knew not God. Yet it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. Do you see that tension? He's going to repeat it in chapter 2, verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And there's major tension. Now, the other thing that you need to notice is at the beginning of many of these chapters, Paul will write something like, as touching something that you wrote to me about. For example, in chapter 7, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. And then chapter 8, now touching things offered unto idols. So Paul is very much answering specific questions, which means you have to be very careful not to take that chapter out of context. Now, we'll do that when we get to chapter 7. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a classic example of what happens when you take it out of context. They were asking a very specific question. Paul was answering that specific question, not teaching general doctrine. And if you take it out of the context of the question— Remember what Neil A. Maxwell said, it's going to go wild. The doctrine's going to go wild if you take it out of context. So remember, too, what's the general setting? What's going on in Corinth and in Greece that would kind of set a tone for what Paul's going to say, and what are the specific questions he's answering? I think one of the main issues is what you're bringing up, Bryce, with this wisdom of the world. And it's commonly thought amongst the people in Paul's day that it's foolishness to believe in Jesus. 1 Corinthians one twenty two: the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men." and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul seems to be saying that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And to Paul, the greatest wisdom is understanding Christ and who he is. He says in the second chapter, verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Paul's going to talk a lot about the mysteries of God, and also that he and the other individuals who represent the Lord, the authorized servants, are the stewards of the mysteries of God. Now that brings up the second issue that I think is going on at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and that's this idea of division. We read this in verse 10. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says in verse 11 that there should be no contentions among them. And then he says this in verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas. Now that's going to be Peter. And I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. Now... (laughs) I think he's having a lapse of memory here. Now, here we have scripture where we have an apostle who's who's talking, and then he's like, wait, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure who I baptized, because look what he says next. He says in verse 15, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name, and I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, 
I don't really know whether I baptize anybody else. But then, but then it gets back to this point. He says, but Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto them which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, briefly, I want to talk about this issue of factions in the early church. We read in the very beginning, in the very first verse, this individual whose name is Sosthenes, our brother, that Paul's bringing with him, this inclusion of the name Sosthenes alongside Paul in the very opening of 1 Corinthians, I think holds a distinct purpose. It is plausible that Sosthenes was the Jewish synagogue leader who faced physical assault from an anti-Jewish crowd when Paul was accused before the governor. Go back to Acts 18 and read about that. If this is the case, then Sosthenes may have now aligned himself with Paul to demonstrate to the Cephas faction that faithful Jewish converts should follow the apostles' leadership in their region. Remember, there were individual Christians who were more aligned with Peter and some more aligned with Paul. There were Christians that thought, okay, I've got to follow the law of Moses. There are Christians who thought, okay, I'm following like Paul's understanding of the gospel that we don't have to live the law of Moses. There were individuals that followed Paul and were separated from other Christians that thought, I don't have to live the law of Moses. And so then we also read about this individual named Stephanus. Stephanus, mentioned earlier as a leader, is identified as someone to whom the Corinthians should submit. He, along with two companions, had arrived to discuss the issues in Corinth with Paul as they were preparing to return to the Corinthian branch under Paul's directive. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18, where it says this, Therefore, give recognition to men such as these. That's my translation of 1 Corinthians 16, 18. In 1 Corinthians, Paul not only emphasizes the importance of Christian unity, but he also underscores the need for the unity to be achieved by following the local leaders who are supervised by apostolic authority. This is a fundamental issue in the early Christian church. Who has authority? And my reading of 1 Corinthians is Paul is trying to establish who are the authorized witnesses, who are the authorized messengers. And so in 1 Corinthians, if we do a careful reading here, we can see this, that Paul is establishing they are those who are supervised by the apostles. And so overall, the lack of unity in Corinth was closely tied to matters of authority. The presence and support of these leaders, along with Paul's instructions regarding submission to them, were aimed at addressing this underlying problem and fostering or growing unity within the Corinthian community. This is important. Paul is going to strongly admonish them, delivering a scathing critique of their misconduct. That's how I'm reading 1 Corinthians. This issue of him correcting them is really a fundamental part of the early Christian church. We have to get the ship going the right direction, and we have to understand who the authorized representatives are. What's interesting is not too long before Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, his master was in America teaching the exact same lesson. When Jesus descends among the Nephites and they feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet, the very first thing out of his mouth is going to be, hey, here's how you're going to baptize, and there shall be no more disputation among you. And then he goes on to teach some doctrine that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one. And then he says, and there shall be no disputations among you as there have hitherto been. Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine. And then the classic, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but of the devil. Do you find it fascinating that that's the very first doctrine out of the Savior's mouth when he comes to America is no contention no division, no division among doctrine and faith. And yet we find Paul teaching the same thing to the Corinthians. I find it interesting that when the Nephites built the, you know, their own Edenic society, their own perfect millennial day, so to speak, it was built on that simple concept. Read fourth Nephi and count how many times it talks about no contention, no contention. It's all over the place. 
And then it even says, there were no envyings, no strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there couldn't be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, no murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites. But they were in one, the children of Christ. Now, do you see the message to the Latter-day Saints? We are trying to build a millennial society. We are trying to create that society of peace that will dwell for a thousand years. And it really boils down to the elimination of contention. In April 2023, Elder D. Todd Christofferson talked about this. The title of his talk is called One in Christ. And he is emphasizing this idea that you're talking about, Bryce. Yeah. Now, the next theme that we find right after that, you've got to be unified. Let's not have any division. He really gets into that idea of the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Now, that's a common theme. The Book of Mormon presents the idea of these antichrists like Korahor and Sherem and Nehor. And what they all have in common is they kind of make us feel foolish for believing in God. Korahor says, O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope, why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Over and over and over again, he calls revelation the effect of a frenzied mind, and this derangement of your minds comes because of the tradition of your fathers. He goes on to say to the high priest, because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performance, which were laid down by ancient priests to usurp power and authority over them, to keep them in ignorance. It has been a common theme from the very beginning for the world to say of people of faith and the things of faith and the doctrines of faith, that they are foolish. Now, Paul's going to use that word repeatedly. Now, he's going to use it kind of as a play on words, saying it's actually foolish to think that the things of God are foolish. So he's going to use the phrase foolishness of God, meaning what men think is foolish is actually foolish to think. The foolishness of God is actually going to save you. His wisdom is greater than anything man can come up with. So this whole idea is kind of speaking to the Latter-day Saints, saying many of us today are so caught up in the thinking of the world, the advocates of the age. What's hip to believe today? And if you don't believe what's hip, then you're a fool. And that word is being thrown at people of faith today, just like it was in Paul's day and in any day. And so just listen to Paul ask us to say, which foolishness are you a part of? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You've got to be wise enough to detect the foolishness of man in criticizing the power of God. Now, notice how Paul twists that in chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? So there's the twist. The world calls the things of God foolish, but God is going to make that wisdom foolish himself. And that's the setting for verse 21, that after in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. A lot of people of wisdom of the world kind of have that attitude, I don't care about spiritual things. They see God as foolish, and so the world by wisdom knows not God. But it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. You are not a fool for believing in God. Don't let the world convince you otherwise. The reality is the doctrines you believe, the truth that you believe, will save mankind, and nothing that the world believes 
can. The power of God will prove everything else to be foolish. But the irony is, their foolishness might cause you to walk away from the things of God. So just understand that difference. The foolishness, I'm in verse 25 of chapter 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God, the smallest of God's things is greater than the strongest of men's things. God hath chosen, verse 27, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. So don't feel foolish when the world tries to make you feel so. The things of God will someday make all the philosophies, all the theories pale in comparison to his greatness. Now, chapter 2 is about relying on the intellect for your information only or allowing the Spirit to teach you. Those who rely only on the intellect are going to miss out on truths. And this is where Paul delivers that beautiful phrase, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love them. Don't miss out on them because they are not intellectually perceived. Verse 11, what man knoweth the things of man save the spirit of man which is in him? There is a part of you that resonates with the theories of men, the philosophies of men. It's going to resonate in your soul because it's going to make sense. Now, that's a good part of us, the logical part of us that where things make sense. But the thing we need to understand is the rest of that. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Don't Shut down the spiritual part of you and over-rely on the intellectual part of you. They are to be held in balance with each other. God relies on our logical part to appeal to our sense of reason, but it is not the only way truth is inputted into my soul. A lot of things make sense, but I have to yield to the Spirit because God speaks spiritually as well as intellectually. Yeah, I was going to say there seems to be some contraries because my reading of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul seems to be going against the rhetoric of the day or the wisdom of men. Look what he says in verse 5. Your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And yet one scholar writes, Paul here in this chapter disapproves of mere rhetoric, but his own writing, including 1 Corinthians displays extensive knowledge and use of rhetorical forms. Paul may not have matched the rhetorical powers of Apollos or the standards of Corinthian leaders, but he was a skillful writer in his own right. And then later, the scholar gets into some of the rhetorical devices that Paul is using in his day that were used by the philosophers of his day. So I think Paul is using the tools of his day and the methods of speech that the great philosophers used to be persuasive to this group in Corinth, because that's how they understood receiving truth. But he also, at the same time, is doing what you're saying, where he's saying, hey, that's not where the power lies. There's got to be a balance. There's a balance in all things. And so I think he says in verse 14, you know, catch the balance. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? because they are spiritually discerned. Many, many truths of God are revealed spiritually. And so if you are one of those that rejects the spiritual part of you and only relies on the intellectual part of you, you are going to miss out on some of God's truths. You will consider those things foolish but the reality is there's a balance in all things, that the Lord uses our logical side and our spiritual side. And so I think the idea for the Latter-day Saints here is to say, I'm going to find that balance. I am very logically motivated myself. Things make sense to me. They resonate with my brain, but I hold those in balance to the spiritual. I recognize that God is speaking not just to my intellect, but to my spirit. 
And quite often there's things that I say, I know this because God has revealed it to my spirit. Other times I can say, I know this because it resonates and it makes sense to me. And I think the combination of those is the invitation to move forward. Find a balance. Jacob in the Book of Mormon will say, to be learned is good. This is not the enemy. To be learned is good. The problem is that learned people often rely only on their learning. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they set aside the counsel of God, supposing they know of themselves. So don't do that. Be learned. Be balanced in your learning and understand that the spiritual part is a very legitimate part of communication with God. And there are things I know spiritually, and there are things I know intellectually. Let those things be balanced with each other, and in that sense, my learning is good and beneficial. You know, for me, sometimes I found the two to be in conflict, and that's where I put it on the shelf and really do the work. For me, sometimes those questions take a long time. One of them took me a couple decades. And sometimes, Mike, it's because I was missing an intellectual piece. And sometimes it's because I was missing a spiritual piece. And sometimes you're missing a piece. And so they seem to conflict. But find the missing piece. Ask for God to fill in the missing piece. Sometimes it's, well, I didn't understand that perspective, or I didn't have that history, or I didn't know that background. And now that I have that intellectual piece, I can balance it better. But just because they're in conflict doesn't necessarily mean you should throw out one or the other, but find a way to balance them. Absolutely. I love what Elder Oak said, where he says, those who rely exclusively on study and reason reject or remain doubtful of all absolutes that cannot be established through the senses, including good and evil in the existence of God. They reject all other methods of acquiring knowledge, including revelation. They tend to be self-sufficient, self-important, and enamored of their own opinions. Reason is their God, and intellectualism is their creed. And so, you know, he's, he's acknowledging that both do work, both are important. And so I, I just want to just sit in that space and know that for me, I am more in the space of, okay, what makes sense logically, but yet there are things that the Lord has spoken to me through the spirit of revelation or, or to my soul, to my spirit, and I hold those truths to be precious to me personally. And I really think that in Paul's day, this would have been a challenge. Imagine you live in Greek culture. Imagine you were raised in the in a world where there were these pagan gods, and someone teaches you about the Savior. The first time you you heard the message, it may sound a little strange. Imagine Paul or maybe Bryce comes to my town and says, hey, Mike, we want to talk to you about this individual who was a preacher in Jerusalem that the Roman government crucified, and he has risen from the dead. His name is Jesus, and he's going to save you, and he's going to save you from your sins and save you from death, and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. That message would have been really difficult for them to accept. It would have sounded so strange and foreign. And so Paul is acknowledging that, and yet at the same time, he is saying, if you listen to our message, if you just give us some time, you can receive it by the Spirit. It's kind of an interesting example, Mike, right? Resurrection doesn't logically make sense. I mean, what in your world has ever been resurrected? Name one thing that's come back from the dead. And so because of my worldly experience, because of a whole lifetime of watching things die and never come back, resurrection doesn't make sense. And so I could get caught up in that feeling that resurrection doesn't make sense and reject it. But what will all that wisdom do on the day of resurrection? when all that I do love, all the people I've ever loved are resurrected, and a resurrected Jesus comes back and manifests himself to me. On that day, the power of the resurrection will make foolish the thoughts that resurrection was foolish to begin with. Do you see what Paul's trying to say? You can get caught up in the foolishness of man and think resurrection is foolish, but that wisdom will seem awfully foolish on resurrection morning. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is addressing the Corinthians' immaturity 
as well as their need to listen to their church leaders. We're back to that idea of, okay, who has authority? Who should you listen to? They're also being encouraged to choose the best things in which to create their spiritual foundations, and they are cautioned against relying solely on the wisdom of the world. Now, he begins this chapter by addressing them as infants in Christ. That's verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ or infants in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are ye not carnal? So essentially, he is saying, hey, you guys, you're not really ready for the meatier things of the gospel. I'm going to simplify this and give this message to you very simply because you're just not quite ready for it. And then he says this in verse 6, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Another way of reading that part in verse 7 is as follows. So that the person planting nor the one watering are anything, but rather it is God that is causing things to grow. I like that translation a little bit better. Essentially what Paul is saying is he is saying, hey, we are just the servants of God. Yes, you need to listen to us, but the main thing is, it is God. God is the one that needs to be given the glory. So I think this is really good counsel for any of us. If we give a great talk in church or maybe a great lesson and someone comes up to you and says, hey, that was such a good lesson, we could say, hey, thank you. But really, it's God that has the glory. These are the words that come from the Lord's servants and his apostles or from the scriptures. We need to remember where the light is really coming from. We'll see this later when John talks about the servants of God are candlesticks. They're not the light, but they hold it up. Now that leads us to a very famous verse of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 3 that often gets lifted out and isolated all by itself. We love to quote 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. And a lot of people throughout my whole life, I've heard that verse always applied to my physical body. And it certainly applies. My physical body certainly can be compared to the temple of God. But that's not really the setting in which Paul is using that. He says in verse 9, ye are laborers together with God and are God's husbandry. And then this phrase, ye are God's building. It's more than just my body is the temple. And I should keep inappropriate things away from my body of my temple. It's that I am the temple. My whole life, my mind, my heart, my soul, where I spend my time, my life is building a temple. That's the point here, is that all of us are building a temple. Now, the test is going to be in verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Someday the fire's coming. Someday, outside my building, there's going to be fire. Now, this is kind of the same analogy that Alma uses about the heat of the day and the roots inside. Can the roots inside withstand the heat of the day? Same idea. I'm building a temple with my life, and someday, fire is coming. So the question Paul's asking is, what kind of building are you building? Now, Jesus laid the foundation. Verse 11, no other foundation can be laid, which is Jesus. Jesus laid the foundation. But the end of verse 10 asks the question, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. What are you building? What materials are you using in the foundation of your life? What are you building on? Now, back to last week's podcast, The Hog and the Eagle. When the eagle has time to itself, he flies up into the upper realms. He's using upper realm building blocks. So what thoughts are in your head? What do your hands touch and tap on? What do you look at? 
What building are you building? Now, he says in verse 12, some of you are building with gold and silver and precious stones. And then he adds three more, wood and hay and stubble. There are certain things I do in this world that are laying gold bricks on my foundation. I think going to church, making covenants, reading the scriptures, those are the things that I think are the gold bricks. I think the time I spend preparing for this podcast is gold, and I want my temple to have lots and lots of gold bricks. Now, other things are silver. They're not quite as precious as gold, but they're still really good, and they're beautiful. One year I was teaching, and there was a young woman who had a message on in her scriptures, and it said, choose bricks. That's all it said, was choose bricks. And I asked her, I says, what's going on with this? Talk to me about this. And she said, I had the most amazing experience, and especially for youth. And she said, I learned that Paul talked about we have to build our life with these different things, uh, you know, whether it's gold or silver or wood or what have you. And she said, for me, I want to choose the best bricks. I'm always asking myself, she said, since that lesson, what are the best bricks? And for her, she gave a few examples, and everybody has theirs. But I think the key is, are we even thinking about this? Like how many people don't even have the conversation with themselves? Or how many people open up their phone and they don't even know why they're doing it? And then the next thing they know, 30 minutes went by and they don't even know what they did. I would say that would be something that would be like a hay activity. You just kind of filled time, but you didn't have direction. You didn't have purpose. You just kind of did something without thinking. Now, obviously, there's times when we need to rest and there's time, you know, we need leisure and those kinds of things. But I think sometimes it's just good to have the conversation okay, how am I spending my time? How can I be purposeful? And how can I have it have a meaning and a direction? And I'm actually going somewhere where I know in my head, okay, I want to go in that direction. Some things that I spend time with in my life are really just stubble. I am building stubble onto my temple. And when the fire comes, guess what's not going to withstand the heat? Now, sometimes these things depend on the situation. When rest is needed, then rest is gold and silver and precious stone. But when rest is not needed and I'm just being lazy, then rest becomes wood, hay, and stubble. And so the question we need to ask, I think what Paul is asking here and what I would spend some time this week pondering and talking to my family and my class is, what kind of building are you building And what's going to happen when the heat comes? There's two possibilities. Verse 13, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, option A, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If the fire comes and your temple doesn't burn down because it can withstand the heat, then there is your protection. You are covered. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. You've lost your covering. Your house, your shelter, your temple is destroyed because you built it with hay and wood and stubble, and that was burned in the fire. Sometimes I sit down and I watch a movie with my wife or with my family, and the purpose of the movie was to unwind and to laugh and to relax and sit and enjoy some time with my spouse. Other times I watch a movie, and honestly, it was a complete waste of my time. I got nothing out of it. It was a stubble experience. So ask yourself those questions. You, every one of us, are building a temple. So what building blocks are you using? Will the materials I use stand the heat. President Monson taught this, in our own personal temple building, as in the building of this holy house, the words of John Ruskin typify my personal feelings. When we build, let us think that we build forever. Let it not be for present delight, nor for present use alone. Let it be such work as our descendants will thank us for. 
And let us think as we lay stone on stone that a time is to come when those stones will be held sacred because our hands have touched them. And men will say, as they look upon the labor and wrought substances of them, see, this our fathers did for us. President Monson taught that in a charge to a new president of a college back in 1992. And I think that those words are still significant today as they were back then, that the things that we do, are they something that is for the present use alone, or could it be something that we do that could have echoes through time? The last part of 1 Corinthians 3 can be a little bit confusing. When Bryce and I started this podcast, one of the things that I talked to Bryce about is I said, Bryce, is it okay if we talk about some of the verses that maybe don't necessarily get taught in church because maybe they're not the most important or maybe they're a little bit confusing? And part of my reasoning for this is when I read a verse, if I don't understand it, I just my brain just can't skip over it and just keep going. I have to go back and try and figure it out. So he says in verse 21, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. One scholar writes, this passage would make good sense to ancient readers. Even Paul and Apollos are given to them by God. Why follow just Paul or Apollos when they should follow the God who gives everything? God's people would take possession of the world to come. At present, they are heirs of the world and children of God who rules it. Stoic and cynic philosophers often praised having nothing, while emphasizing that the whole world belonged to them, so that they could take whatever they needed. They often cited the proverb, quote, friends share all property in common, end quote and claimed that because they were friends of the gods who owned everything, everything was theirs. And so it seems to be that that is the idea that Paul is using. He is using a common phrase of his day, all things are yours, and it was used by the philosophers of the day, and he's repackaging it for his Christian audience. And he's saying, hey, listen, all things are yours because you are heirs of God. Verse 23, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, I see this echoed in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord says that those that follow the priesthood, those that accept the Lord and his authorized servants, shall inherit all things. So that's one way to read that last part of 1 Corinthians 3. And so with that, we're going to go into the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we're back to that idea of the stewards, or the those that are holders of the mysteries. Look what it says in verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, Paul's going to say, I am nothing by myself. I am a messenger, but he is calling himself out as a steward of the mysteries of God. Another way to read verse 1 is this. Let a man in this manner measure us, who are the servants of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. I think that reading really helps us understand that what Paul is saying is take heed how you speak of and receive the authorized servants of God. That sets the tone for the rest of this chapter. Now, before you just brush this chapter off and say it's not very applicable, that idea is so significant. So many prophets and seers and revelators have warned parents, be careful that your flippant attitudes towards gospel principles don't actually cause your children to go astray. And I think that's happening today. We're watching people walk away from truth. They walk away from God. They walk away from the truths that they know and they don't pass them on to their children. And then we're watching those children be raised without the truth that their parents were raised with. And so I think there's an, uh, some application here. Those of you who have truth, those of you who have been taught truth, those of you who are stewards of truth, you're going to be held accountable to the stewardship of that truth. And part of that means teaching and passing those truths on to others. I think there's a powerful application in chapter 4 
to parents who kind of have a lax attitude towards God, and that lax attitude gets passed on and amplified in their children. Well, that's a stewardship that I have. I have a stewardship to pass on what I know to be true and not be the break in the chain that causes everyone after me to have lost that truth. Yeah, excellent. So starting in 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 6, I want to talk a little bit about some of the verses that I think are kind of challenging. So I want to just slow down a little bit. I think the key to reading these verses is to understand that Paul is being ironic. Verse 6 in another translation reads as follows. For I have applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brethren, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Already you are filled. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are ill-clad and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become and now are, as the refuse of the world, the off-scouring of all things. Essentially, in verse 7, he is saying that everything they have, God has given to them, and they've earned none of it. Philosophers often liked to make this point to keep people from boasting. Another way to look at verse 7, another translation could read as follows. For who discerns or judges you? And what do you have that you have not already taken? And of what do you have to brag as though you have not seized it? I think in verse 7, Paul is emphasizing that all the Corinthian saints have has come to them from God. And that means that they should not only acknowledge this truth, but that they shouldn't boast about their wealth or possessions or whatever it is that makes them think that they're better than someone else. It kind of reminds me of when I was in high school and I had to work really hard to buy my car because our family was poor. And there were some kids at the school who had really nice new cars because there was a lot of wealth in my school and they would kind of act like it was something they earned, but really it was a gift. And so what Paul is saying to these people is, hey, don't you guys walk around like you're something great. What you have has been a gift. And then he uses irony in a couple of these verses. Look what he says in verse 8 in the King James. Now you are full, now you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle to the world and to the angels and to men. We are fools, but you are wise. In these passages, I think Paul is using the philosopher's arguments of his day. Paul is saying in verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. But the underlying truth is this. Essentially, the Corinthians aren't wise. He says, we are weak, but you are strong, but they're not. They think they are. Look what he says in verse 8. You're full, you're rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. Let's be honest. The truth is this. If they didn't receive the gospel, they'll never be kings. And so once again, I read verse 8 as something that is ironic. Have you ever received a text from someone that was sarcastic and you read it literally, and then maybe it caused tension between you and your friend, or maybe you asked your friend, I don't understand. Are you being sarcastic or are you being literal? And then your friend said, ha ha, LOL, I'm being sarcastic. And then you're like, oh, and you read it differently. So I will just say this. I think maybe a good way to read verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 is to read those as irony. Notice that same pattern. He's saying, if you call the gospel foolish, 
the gospel in the end will prove you to be foolish. So he uses that same word both ways. And Paul's doing the same thing here. If you think your wisdom makes you better, in the end, you're going to realize that those who have God's wisdom are really the best ones. It's just kind of that same irony. It is. And I really do think he is invoking a lot of the images of the cynics of Corinth. I mean, there was this one, probably the most famous cynic was Diogenes. He literally lived in a pithos or like a, a stone jar. And he, he he actually lived in Corinth and he was hungry and thirsty. And he, verse 11, had no certain dwelling place. And the cynics often were professing themselves wise, but everybody thought they were fools. And so Paul is inverting that image. He says, I'm the fool, but what he's really saying is, I am wise. And he's invoking the image of the cynics that lived in and around Corinth during that time period. And by using that image, he's using irony to teach a higher truth. There are so many fun stories about this guy named Diogenes that lived in and around Corinth. But one of the most famous ones is when Alexander the Great was coming through town, and he came up to him. And remember, just imagine this dirty guy with a dog licking his sores, and this guy's living in a jar on the side of the road. And Alexander the Great rides up to him on a horse, and he's always wanted to meet Diogenes. And so he comes up to him, and he says, I've been so excited to meet you. What do you have to say to me? And Diogenes looked at Alexander the Great, remember this mighty conqueror, and he says, yeah, I have something to say to you. You're standing in my sunlight. <laughs> and Alexander then declared, if I were not Alexander the Great, then I should wish to be Diogenes. And Di Diogenes replied, if I were not Diogenes, I would still wish to be Diogenes. <laughs> it's just this funny, uh, there's so many funny stories about this guy, but essentially he was famous. And so, you know, I really think chapter four is invoking those images. And so people in Paul's day kind of looked at the cynics as a bunch of fools and the cynics thought they were wise. Paul's flipping the script and he's saying, I know people think I'm a fool, but really I'm the wise one. I'm the one that knows the true Sophia, the true wisdom. And the, and the only true wisdom is come unto Jesus. That's the true wisdom. Chapter 5. Chapter 5 opens up with this idea that there is incest going on in Corinth, that there's an individual who has, quote, his father's wife. That's chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up. And so the issue of pride and fornication is at the forefront of 1 Corinthians 5. So in this chapter, he talks about this idea that this is not a good thing. He says, your glorying is not good in verse 6. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. This is the issue of dough and yeast. And so what he's saying is a little yeast or a little leaven causes the whole bit of dough to rise. And so in this chapter, he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Elder Neil A. Maxwell taught, do not company with fornicators, not because you are too good for them, but as C.S. Lewis wrote, because you are not good enough. Remember that bad situations can wear down even good people. Joseph had both good sense and good legs, in fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Now, Elder Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve talked about what he termed the doctrine of inclusion. And in teaching this doctrine, he said this, the Savior's deliberate use of Jews and Samaritans clearly teaches that we are all neighbors and that we should all love and esteem and respect others despite our personal differences, including religious, political, and cultural differences. However, I am not suggesting that we should associate in any relationship that would place us or our families at spiritual risk. Elder Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve taught this, Many teachers in church and school have grieved at the way some teenagers, including LDS youth, treat one another. The commandment to love one another surely includes love and respect across religious lines and also across racial, cultural, and economic lines. We challenge all of our youth to avoid bullying, insults, or language and practices that deliberately inflict pain on others. All of these violate the Savior's command to love one another. So that's Elder Oaks. 
Verse 13 says, But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, when the church formally puts away a person who is embracing serious sin, this is called church discipline. And so, in the show notes, we put an excerpt right out of True to the Faith, a gospel reference explaining the process of church discipline. And we put that in there for you as teachers. If this comes up in a classroom, it's always good to have the authorized source from the church. It's good to have that document and then in a classroom setting, if it comes up, I read it. But clearly in verse 13 of this chapter, chapter 5, Paul is saying that there will be times when certain individuals will have to be removed from membership within the community of Christians based on their behavior. And at least in chapter 5, he is indicating that those kinds of behaviors associated with pornea, as it is in the Greek, or fornication as it is in the King James, are not to be espoused amongst the Christian community. One note about chapter 5 that's kind of fun before we jump to chapter 6. Notice verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle, and yet we're reading 1 Corinthians. So clearly there are numerous letters that Paul wrote that we do not have in our modern New Testament. And there's a missing one right there. The first letter to the Corinthians, I wrote unto you an epistle. Yeah. Which leads us to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11 talks about lawsuits among the believers. He addresses the issue of the believers taking legal disputes to secular courts. He challenges their lack of wisdom in handling these matters and reminds them of their identity as true saints and followers of Jesus. He essentially encourages them to solve this within the community. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, he is encouraging them to flee sexual immorality. He explores the issues of sexual immorality and its implications, and he argues against the idea of what some would term sexual freedom or the misuse of the body. Elder D. Todd Christofferson taught this. He said, acknowledging these truths, and he's, he's quoting 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, he says, we should certainly not deface our body with tattoos or debilitate it as with drugs or defile it as with fornication, adultery, or immodesty. As our body is the instrument of our spirit, it is vital that we care for it as best we can. We should consecrate its powers to serve and further the work of Christ. I think that's a really interesting way to look at my body. What is the purpose of my body? And according to Elder Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve, my body can be consecrated to God to further the work of Christ. And I think that is a really neat way to look at your body. Hey, am I taking care of my body so that I can actually go and be of use to God? It's not all just about me. But how can I use this gift called my body to bless the lives of God's children? I really like 1 Corinthians 6.19, where Paul says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. I like that verse. I, I think it's very valuable. I think the key is don't use it as a hammer, but use it as an invitation to lead people to be motivated to do good. And so I think we need to be careful with it. But I really like, for me personally, when I teach it, I talk about what it means to me, how I can apply it in my life. I want to build a building that's an invitation for the Holy Ghost to come and dwell. I cannot build a building that violates Heavenly Father's commandments and expect the Holy Ghost to come and be an, an occupant of that building. That's how I read it is if you want to build a building that's carnal and sensual and devilish, don't be surprised if the Holy Ghost leaves and abandons that building. But if you want the Holy Ghost to be with you in your life, a participant in your days, then you need to build a building that's worthy of that Holy Ghost. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to say, I want the Holy Ghost in my life, then build a building worthy of the Holy Ghost. That's how I use it. Now, that leads to chapter 7. Now, there's some great content in chapter 7, but to me, the context of chapter 7 is a great lesson. I think chapter 7 is a great example of what happens if you take Paul's letters out of the context in which he intended them. 
So many people have used chapter 7 as evidence of a celibate life, that God favors a celibate life, that marriage is not ordained of God, and that God's ministers should live a celibate life. And they quote these very verses that says you shouldn't be with a woman, you shouldn't be married. A lot of people take it from verse 8, for example, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Now the assumption is that they think Paul isn't married, and he's saying to the unmarried people, hey, it's better to not be married, because he says in verse 9, if you can't contain, if you can't control yourself, then go ahead and be married, for it's better to be married than to burn. And the interpretation is, it's better to not be married. That's the better life, which flies in the face of modern doctrine, especially the proclamation on the family. So everything changes if you understand from the Joseph Smith translation that this chapter was written to missionaries. This whole chapter was for those called to the ministry. You'll find that in the JST. He says things like, I speak unto you who are called unto the ministry. He's speaking to missionaries. Now notice the chapter heading we have in our modern LDS scriptures. Paul answers special questions about marriage among those called on a mission. Now all of a sudden that makes perfect sense. That's the context that it's harder to serve a mission when you're married and you have a family than before you have a family. Now, why is it that it's better to be unmarried? Even looking at our married missionaries who have to take care of their spouse, they have children at home. So take that context and now read chapter 7, and it completely changes the meaning of these verses. And that's my point. If you take Paul out of context, it gets wild, and it can create harmful expectations, not helpful expectations. You see, my whole take on this whole thing about marriage is, to me, the linchpin is verse 29. I think Paul thinks the time is short, Jesus is coming, so his advice is based on that which is erroneous. And then he says in verse 25, I give it as my judgment. And he says in verse 6, too. Could Paul have thought that the second coming was very eminent, and so he was speaking to them of, hey, let's quickly get this done? Sure. Now, let me just point out the gem, what I consider the gem of chapter 7, but you're going to find it in the Joseph Smith translation. You've got to read it with all of the changes that Joseph Smith adds. So it's in your appendix. It's not in the King James Version. It's in the appendix. I want to start in verse 29. For I speak unto you who are called unto the ministry. For this I say, brethren, the time that remaineth is but short. To me, I read that as an application to someone called on a two-year mission. I think the idea for the Latter-day Saints here is to say, if I'm going out on a mission, I've put my life on hold for two years. I hear the Lord saying to me, you're not going to be gone very long. Paul said, For this I say, brethren, the time that remaineth is but short, that ye shall be sent forth unto the ministry. Even they who have wives shall be as though they had none, for ye are called and chosen to do the Lord's work. So do it well. Now, verse 32, But I would, brethren, that you magnify your calling. I would have you without carefulness. For he who is unmarried, unattached, careth for the things that belongeth to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, therefore he prevaileth. But he who is married, and I'd be careful with this, but I would address it, he who leaves a girlfriend back home, careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife or his girlfriend or her boyfriend. Now listen to what Paul says. Therefore there is a difference, for he is hindered. I think that's the gist of this whole chapter, is if you're going to serve the Lord, don't be hindered. If you have a girlfriend back home or a boyfriend back home, 
Can you have them in your life and not be hindered? Yes. That's the idea, is don't be hindered. If you're hindered, then you're missing the opportunity to fully serve the Lord and receive the blessings that he wants you to have. So the Lord says in section four, he that is called, serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. President Kimball taught the idea of locking your heart. You don't serve with a divided heart where half my heart is back home and I'm constantly worried about what's going on back home and my other half is here in the mission field. He says, lock your heart, keep it in the mission field and serve with all your heart. The Lord will take care of things back home. That I would point to is the heart and soul of chapter seven, but you're not gonna find it in the King James Version. You have to find it in the Joseph Smith translation. That word hindered doesn't appear in the King James. So serve with all your heart. Now, the spirit of that goes back to this whole idea of the philosophies of man, the wisdom of man. Don't be so caught up in the things of man, the things that are going on around you, that your spiritual progress is hindered. Because someday, all of that won't matter. Someday, Isaiah says, we're going to toss our gold and our silver to the moles and to the rats, because it won't be valuable. Things that people spent their whole life working towards will be absolutely of no value someday. Build a house you can live in for eternity. Go out and spend your time with gold bricks. Don't worry so much about the hay and the stubble that someday really won't matter. Be wise enough to build the right building now. That's Paul's message to you this week. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about 1 Corinthians 8 through 13. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.